This is Ed Linenthal, editor of the Journal of American History. During the sesquicentennial years of the Civil War, the Organization of American Historians is committed to bringing the best current thinking on this complex era to a wide audience. We aim to explore the war from its beginnings through its aftermath. As part of this goal, the OEH is pleased to offer a series of podcast presentations with distinguished historians. During 2013, we are focusing on turning points. Scott Hartwig has worked at Gettysburg National Military Park for 33 years, and all of us gripped by the power of the place and events, the battle and its aftermath, and the Gettysburg Address, are thankful that Scott has been there to offer us wise counsel. Scott serves now as Supervisory Park Historian, and last year the Johns Hopkins University Press released his book to Antietam Creek, the Maryland Campaign of September 1862. And any of you listeners who have never been to Gettysburg, this, of course, is a wonderful, albeit crowded, spring and summer to visit and see the wonderful new visitor center. Uh, it's also a chance for you, perhaps if you're lucky, to have a tour of the battlefield with Scott. And for those of you who have never had that pleasure, let me tell you, it's, it's one of life's great moments. So Scott, <laughs> welcome, and thanks for taking the time to do this. It's good to be here. So, uh, Scott, this year the focus of the OAH's Civil War 150 program is turning points, not surprisingly, 1863, and I doubt many listeners won't have some sense of Gettysburg as a turning point in the war, but I thought it would be good if you, you know, as you do with visitors, to talk about Gettysburg as a turning point, and if you twin it when you're talking with people, say, with um, uh, Vicksburg and, and other events, a sort of bring the battle uh, as important as it was into a kind of larger context. So why don't we start there? It's important with visitors when you're trying to place Gettysburg in a context that, that you don't make Gettysburg something that it wasn't. It wasn't the single turning point of the Civil War. But what you try to do is help them understand that this was a really significant event in the course of the war because the war as this campaign of Gettysburg approached in the, in the late spring, early summer of 1863, it, it was really kind of at a crossroads. So you had um, Vicksburg, where Ulysses S. Grant had bottled up an entire Confederate army along the Mississippi, and we know that strategically that was really, really important. The Confederacy needed to maintain that bastion along the river to deny the Federals full control of the river. And there was... Um, declining manpower in the South. There was a failing infrastructure in the South that was trying to you know, continue to maintain a war footing. And there was thoughts that the best Southern strategy for the summer of 63 was to reinforce Vicksburg. And the one person who thought that that was a losing strategy was Robert E. Lee. Lee thought what the South needed was a game changer. And the game changer that he saw was an invasion of the North. So I think Lee was uh, actually very politically savvy, far more politically savvy than people have given him credit for. I think he was actually more politically savvy than Jefferson Davis was. I think Lee sensed that there was war weariness in the North. The casualty lists were very high. 
it didn't appear that um, the North was any closer to winning this war after two years. Lee's army had just won two huge victories at Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville in December of 62 and May of 1863. So he wants to take his army and mount a major offensive. Let's not send anybody to Vicksburg. Uh, we're just reacting to what the Yankees do. Let's let me take this army up into Pennsylvania and we'll draw the Union Army after us. We'll disrupt the plans of the, of the Union. We'll uh, strengthen the peace movement. We'll defeat their major field army in the East and we will continue to drive home to the people of the North. You can't win this war. It's unwinnable. It'll go on forever. Negotiate a peaceful settlement. So Lee, I think, was seeking something really big out of this campaign. And when you look at it from the Union perspective, yes, they're being successful around Vicksburg, but the war has been incredibly expensive in dollars and in human life. And in the Eastern Theater in Virginia, Maryland, Pennsylvania, the Union Army seems incapable of defeating Robert E. Lee. The media focuses upon what's going on here in the Eastern Theater, and it's affecting a lot of people. And the, and the peace movement is beginning to gain some momentum. And now, in the summer of 63, you have Robert E. Lee launching an invasion of the North. And if you were a Union soldier in the Army of the Potomac, what direction are you marching now? You're not marching south. You're marching north. What state are you marching into? You're not marching into Virginia, you're marching into Pennsylvania, free state, northern state. This is two years into the war. Well, I, what I often do with visitors, I say, imagine if you were a GI who landed on Omaha Beach on June 6, 1944. And then on June 6, 1946, two years later, you're fighting the Germans in Omaha Beach. And if you lose, you're going to be driven back into the ocean and the war's over. Now you can start to sense where you are if you're in the Army of the Potomac. As they marched towards Gettysburg and Pennsylvania, uh, the battle that was impending was one they had to win. So today we can look back at it and say, yeah, you know, well, lots of other things could have happened. The South would have still lost the war. But we don't know. If the Confederates had won a significant victory in Pennsylvania, we can't predict what the reactions to that would have been. I don't think they would have been good. I think it would have been bad. I think the Army of the Potomac had to win this battle. I think the soldiers in both armies understood the stakes in this battle were going to be exceptionally high. They wrote about it in their diaries and their journals and their letters, and they fought like it did. They fought like the fate of a nation rested on what was going to, what was going to uh, be the outcome of this battle, both the Union and Confederate soldiers. So in that respect, I think Gettysburg is hugely significant in the war. Doesn't decide the war, but it is, and it's not the game changer that Lee wants. It's a different sort of game changer. It's a game changer that strengthens the North and weakens the South. Scott, what, where do, are you on the issue of um, uh, whether Meade should have pursued Lee uh, and, and uh, tried to attack again? after the battle? Yeah, that's uh, one area that the, um, there's a lot of criticism of George Meade, the commander of the Army of the Potomac, that after the battle is over, he, he, some claim he doesn't pursue Lee at all, and others claim that his pursuit was very lackluster. Um, To answer the first part, he does pursue Lee. 
The, the day after, the day he found out that the Confederates were withdrawing, he immediately ordered his cavalry in pursuit. So, and there was a lot of uh, fighting between the opposing cavalry during the Confederate retreat. But if you were Meade in the, in the real campaign of Gettysburg, not the one sometimes everybody fights after it's all over, when the Confederates began to pull out of Gettysburg, it was unclear to me whether the Confederates were retreating to Virginia or whether they were withdrawing to South Mountain, which is a mountain range just west of Gettysburg. Why that's very significant is if they were retreating only to South Mountain to take up defensive positions, if you were Meade, you had to establish your supply depot in Gettysburg. That would be your base of operations. If the Confederates were retreating, your base of operations would be Frederick, Maryland. Huge difference between the two. Mm -hmm. You make that decision, tons of supplies are going to start going to those whichever place you've decided upon. So Meade had to order a reconnaissance on July 5th and 6th to determine what Lee was doing. It confirmed for him, the reconnaissance was actually pretty cautiously done, but it confirmed for him that, that Lee was retreating. So now Meade orders all of the supplies to be shipped to Frederick. He has to march all of his infantry and so on down to Frederick to resupply them with ammunition and food. And then he marches over the mountains, reaches the Confederates who've entrenched their position, and he ordered an attack for the morning of July the 13th. And on that morning, some of his subordinate officers who he had uh, a great deal of confidence in their, their, um, their abilities and their, their opinions told him that the attack had no chance of success, that the Confederate position was extremely strong. It was not going to succeed. And uh, Meade made, I think, a, a courageous decision, and I think it was also the correct one. He called off the attack. Now, of course, this let the Confederates get away. They got across the river. The war went on. But I think that um, Meade had seen enough wastage of life in this war to satisfy generals like Burnside, who felt that they, the political pressure on them was so great they had to do something, that they did something that they felt was not the best course of action. Mm -hmm. And it was the soldiers who paid the price. And Meade was not going to do that. And so Meade calls off the attack, the Confederates get away, and of course everybody's upset with Meade, and then the victor of Gettysburg offers his resignation. <laughs> yeah. which, I, which I always think, one of the great ironies of Gettysburg, I like to point this out to visitors too, when they, they think about Gettysburg as the turning point. I'm like, okay, so think about this. This turning point, both commanding generals offered their resignation as a result of the Gettysburg campaign. Uh, uh, interesting. Interesting. So it tells you that everybody was kind of dissatisfied with it at the time. The Federals felt that they should have had a greater victory. The Confederates were very disappointed that the outcome wasn't what they were hoping for. And ultimately, both of the commanders offered their resignation, and both resignations are not accepted. And we, and we go on. And we go on. And you, I, I think you could write a fantastic book about your years at Gettysburg and the experiences you've had with with visitors, but talk just a little about uh, what what visitors are most interested in, and has that changed uh, some over time? And um, maybe also, what are some of the common misperceptions about the battle? I guess I just stated one: the idea that Meade didn't um, didn't pursue. 
there's a lot of myths about the battle. I mean, Gettysburg is famous for its myths. The Confederates came to Gettysburg looking for shoes. The uh, sharpshooters picked off five Union generals on Little Round Top. Um, you know, you could go on and on. With a, uh, Lincoln wrote the Gettysburg Address on the back of an envelope while riding the train to Gettysburg. You know, there's a lot of myths related to the battle. Um, I would say the the thing that people are interested in when they come here has not necessarily changed. The, the, the base that people want to know is they arrive at Gettysburg and they know that there was a battle here. So, and they know that Lincoln gave the Gettysburg address here. So what they want to do first is get oriented. Where was everybody and what was important? And where did Lincoln give the Gettysburg address? Once you've, answered that for people, that they, you've given them a general idea of how the battle was fought and who was where, then people began to be interested in a multitude of different things. They might be interested in what happened to the civilians, or they're interested in soldiers from a particular state, or they're inter interested in where their ancestors fought in the battle, um, or what did the Gettysburg Address mean? So then they start to branch off into deeper avenues, but I think the first that first level is just to say what happened here and where and where did it happen, and and, and why was this significant? Why did any of this matter? That I don't think has actually changed. What I would say has changed is that our visitation to the battlefield is far more diverse than when I first got here in 1979. It is definitely more diverse. There are um, many more minorities that visit the battlefield now than we had very few when I first got here. Um, there's many more minorities. There are a lot more women who are interested in the story. And they're not just interested in, you know, a lot of times people think, well, women are interested in like civilian things or the medical stuff. and. They are, but there's a lot of women who are interested in military uh, aspects of, of the battle as well. But I, I think that's, that's a great thing, is that the, um, the span of people who have an interest in this, we have a lot of visitors from overseas that come here as well. And, um, and it's a combination of the battle and what the battle and the war means as embodied by the Gettysburg Address. Mm -hmm. That is another thing that attracts a lot of people to this battlefield, is that the Gettysburg Address has a universal appeal. Is there a, a, a real interpretive challenge just with the size of the battlefield? I mean, you start on the first day over on one side of town, and then to follow the second and third day, you know, you're on the other side of town, and then... Uh, those of you in the Park Service charged with both interpreting and preserving this have this huge battlefield, the cemetery, the Eisenhower farm. That's a pretty big challenge, isn't it? It is. It's a big challenge. It's also, I think, important that we, we have to, to some degree, tell people what was important and what was not as important. But we have to be very careful in how we do that because in the past what's happened at Gettysburg is sometimes we've determined what was important based on visitor convenience. And I don't agree with that. I think that 
you tell the visitor by where you do programming what was important and let them choose what they want to go to. So they can make the choice. So, for example, if you do a lot of programming at Pickett's Charge and Little Round Top, what it tells the visitor is those were the most important parts of the battle. Well, not necessarily. What we try to do now is we try to put as many people on the field as we possibly can and offer layers of interpretive experiences, realizing that the majority of our visitors don't have a tremendous amount of time, and they're going to get the brush stroke. So they're going to maybe go to the museum, see the film in Cyclorama, um, take a two-hour tour of the battlefield, and maybe go to the Eisenhower farm if they've got time, and then they're gone, and, they, and then they leave. They're not going to even go on a ranger program. They don't have time. We About... About 7 or 8% of all the visitors who come into the visitor center attend the ranger program. So that gives you some idea. The majority of people aren't doing that. They don't have the time to do it. And um, so we're only reaching those people who have an above-average interest, although it amounts to about 50 or 60,000 people. <laughs> so it's a pretty significant number that come in our programs. So it is a challenge. You've got to – you have to have – a multitude of tools that you use. So that's why our film that we show and our museum that we have, what you're telling people in that is is critically important because the majority of your visitors are going to see that. Scott, you you mentioned uh, that there are other important sites, uh, PowerPoints, other than uh, Little Round Top and Devil's Den, the Pickett's Charge area, uh, and I confess that those are two places that always attract me when, when I'm there. What's, what's uh, a, a hidden gem and a favorite place for you to do an interpretive program that, uh, that many visitors wouldn't get to? I, I've always liked the, the first day's battlefield because um, it, uh, it's a great area that you can place Gettysburg in context so that visitors can appreciate the significance of Gettysburg. It's also interesting in how the armies came together and how a battle began at Gettysburg and, and was shaped. It's uh, a dramatic story in that the Union commanders make a conscious and I'm sure gut-wrenching decision, which was to trade men for time. So they lose 9,000 men on July the 1st. So, um, but they gained the time that they needed. And the Army is able to fight a battle on a really strong defensive position on July 2nd and July 3rd. So it's, it's one of those stories that you can, you can speak to the, you know, war is awful. And um, people have to make really tough, cruel decisions sometimes. And the outcome of those decisions can change things. And in that case, on July the 1st, it was a big, it was very significant what happened. Um, you know, the, the Confederate story is interesting, how the Confederates kind of stumble into the battle. And um, so the first day is, I wouldn't say I have a favorite area of the field. I do like that area because it, it, uh, it tends to get overlooked because it doesn't have a devil's den or a little round top or a picket's charge or something like that. But it's, it's a really interesting place. Another part of the battlefield that actually now is beginning to get more attention 
because we've done some landscape rehabilitation there is Culp's Hill. So, um, I mean, there's a tremendous amount of fighting that occurs there on the second and third day of the battle. But because everything was wooded over there, even areas that, even areas that weren't wooded, it was hard for people to really understand what happened there. But it's easier now to get a good feeling for what happened on Culp's Hill. You, you've talked a little bit about this already, Scott, but uh, in your time there, how has, and this is a really broad question, how has interpretation changed? And of course, as part of that, I'm thinking in more recent years on the significance of uh, rally on the high ground, but you've really, you've been at Gettysburg now over a couple of generations of interpretive change. So tell listeners some uh, about that change. Yeah, when, when I first came to Gettysburg, our interpretation was um, fairly straightforward. We, we did early on interpret the civilian story. We didn't touch on slavery at all. Slavery was literally not discussed in any respect. We didn't interpret really anything outside the boundary of our park, which means we didn't interpret in Gettysburg, the town of Gettysburg at all. And... Um, we had only specific places on the battlefield that we actually had rangers interpreting, like Pickett's Charge, Little Round Top, Devil's Den. Um, so we, it was somewhat limited in, in, in the type of interpretation that we did. And what we've tried to do over the years, and of course, Rally on the High Ground um, added support to what we were already trying to do here at Gettysburg, was to broaden our interpretation recognizing that a majority of our visitors when they come here want to know what happened here during the battle. So still a majority of our programming is about the Battle of Gettysburg, but we also wanted to address the story of what happened after the battle was over. We wanted to tell a story of the memory of the battle through monumentation. We wanted to help people understand why Gettysburg was significant. So why was there a civil war? Um, what brought the Civil War on? What was the role of slavery in the war? What, what did the war resolve? What did the war not resolve? Um, now, some of those, you can cover those through interpretive programs, and some you want to cover through a film. Um, we also began interpreting in the town of Gettysburg. We now do a program regularly in downtown Gettysburg. It's proved, proved to be really, really popular. Um, we interpret the medical aspects of the battle. We've tried to uh, broaden the horizons of our interpreters who are doing the programs. Um, one of the challenges the Park Service will always face is, you know, you're always, a lot of your seasonal staff that's coming in here are not PhD students. They're maybe people who are entering a master's program or they might be retired individuals or whatever. So the higher the level you uh, seek to achieve in your programming, you need people who are capable of doing those programs. And that is an eternal challenge for the Park Service. So we try to get people who can return here year in and year out, and we develop them over time. It takes a while to master this story. It's a huge story. And it's, it's not just mastering the story so you have the knowledge. It's, it's, it's mastering the ability to share the knowledge and to help people understand the relevancy because ultimately that's really we want people to value the preservation of this place but we also want them to understand 
why and how it's relevant to their lives. So when you're when you're taking a group around, Scott, and uh, there are perhaps people passionately engaged because of uh, ancestors, for example, um, on on the Confederate side, and they didn't come to Gettysburg to hear about uh, the free African community of Gettysburg or the role of slavery and the Civil War and ultimately a major reason why these armies collided at Gettysburg um, and verbalize that. How, how, do you, how do you respond to, um, to those folks and, and to folks who just say, look, all I want is the logistics of the battle. I'm not interested in context or any of this other stuff. Well, I think the answer to that is the one thing you never do uh, because this is all public history. So what you never do is you don't try and beat people over the head with something. You, your, your job is not to walk out there with an agenda to advance. Your job is to explain people and help people understand those people who lived this event. So I'll give you a personal example. When I uh, have done a program in the National Cemetery and talked about the Gettysburg Address, um, I try to dissect the address so that visitors can understand where Lincoln was coming from and the context in which he was saying these things. So when we read the first sentence of the Gettysburg Address, the point I make to people is I say, pretty much everybody who lives in this country today completely agrees with that sentence. They totally agree with it. And they think we've always been that way. But I said, we haven't been. So remember, in 1861, 11 states secede from the Union because Abraham Lincoln's elected president. And this is a defense of slavery. And, and here's what the president and the vice president of the Confederate States of America have to say about this notion of equality, that all men are created equal. So I read to them a quote from Jefferson Davis and a quote from Alexander Stevens. It makes it clear as a bell, they do not believe the races are equal. So if you were somebody from the South, and that's all I did, you might say, uh, I think this guy's got an agenda. But what I do then is I say, yeah, but you have to understand also that President Lincoln had a fire in the rear. He didn't have, everybody didn't agree with him in the rear. Let me read to you what some people in the North had to say about his emancipation policy. And then I read them a couple of things from people in the North. So what it does is it diffuses this notion that one side's good guys, one side's bad guys. It helps people see that what I want them to get out of it is that Lincoln was a leader. And that Lincoln wasn't doing something that was popular. He was doing what he thought was right. He was trying to direct the country where he felt it needed to go. So when you present things in that way, you, you're not casting blame on anybody. You're just trying to explain them. I've even, in the midst of a walk across the field of Pickett's Charge, I've paused and I said, let's consider for a moment why this group of men is marching across the field to try and kill that group of men, and that group of men is waiting over there to kill this group of men. What's the individual fighting for and what's their government fighting for? Those are things that we need to consider because they tell us why they were killing each other, and they believed in it enough to fight and kill one another. You have to acknowledge that and understand that. And I also try to add, if someone questions me further on that, my point usually is, look, you don't own the decisions your ancestors made. They were people of their time. They made, a, they made the choices based upon 
the culture in which they were raised and what they believed. And um, if I had been raised in, uh, you know, somewhere in Mississippi or Alabama or Georgia, I probably would have fought for the Confederacy because I would have been raised in a culture that believed all of the stuff that they fought for. We don't believe it anymore. So I, we, you try and present it in, in that way so that it's, it's not an assault upon anybody today or where they're from. It's an explanation of why people made the choices that they did during the war. And, and one of the ways, uh, and I know others do this too, but that I thought was extraordinarily effective when I've been on uh, tours with you is the way that you've used uh, first person. If I'm remembering correctly, is it the, the first Minnesota? Uh, you did a program um, and, and read from some of their diaries. And it was I just, might have. Yeah, yeah, it was just breathtaking how it, it just yeah. thickened that experience um, and, and brought you into, into that world. Um, in, in, and I, I imagine that whole field is populated for you with voices from diaries. Aren't it? Oh, it is. It is. Yeah. It's, you know, cause everybody, everybody who survived the battle <clears throat> wrote about it in some way. Incl- including women writing about this, this strange new world that uh, horrific world that Gettysburg was. I, I've mentioned to you, I think before uh, how much, I learned from Margaret Creighton's book, The Colors of Courage, that focused on the free African-American community in Gettysburg and ethnic conflict in the Union Army and women's experience um, in Gettysburg. And these stories that I think she excavated so well, um, are there still these kind of interpretive gems, uh, stories waiting to be told, do you think, that for one reason or another, we haven't focused on? Well, there's, there's uh, one really large story that remains untold, and that is um, we know that, um, you know, the Confederate Army probably had 5,000, maybe 8,000 slaves with the Army that accompanied the Army. The Union Army had uh, certainly several thousand that were with the Army that accompanied the Army either as uh, Teamsters, people who worked in hospitals, um, people who worked in supply, people who worked as they were hired by officers to be cooks or body servants. Because if you were an officer in the Union Army, you didn't get any, rations were not issued to you. You had to purchase your food. You were given an allowance to purchase your food. So what a lot of officers would do is when they were in Virginia and slaves would run away to Union lines, they'd hire them to uh, be their cook. So several officers might go together and they'd hire a fellow to um, wash their clothes, cook their food, and they'd just give them money and they'd put a pool of money together. Well, all these people came to this battlefield. We literally know nothing about them. Uh, And we know, I do know uh, through one book um, called Buckeye Blood, which is Ohio at Gettysburg, there's a really remarkable story they tell in there about an Ohio unit that was fighting on Culp's Hill on the morning of July the 3rd. And um, during the midst of the fighting, they said a black fellow walked up to their lines, picked up a fallen rifle and cartridge box, and started fighting with them. They had no idea who he was. <clears throat> he fought with them when the fighting subsided. He put the rifle and cartridge box down and left. They had no idea who he was. 
I mean, the odds are he was probably a teamster or he was a officer servant with the Union Army, but he fought in the battle, but we don't know his name. We don't know anything about him. And um, we don't really know anything about all, there's thousands of these people who come to this battlefield with the two armies that we don't know anything about. And a lot of soldiers write about them. It's just nobody's done the work, which is hard work, in looking at all these original sources to try to piece together a story. Well, it sounds like a terrific book project for somebody or a dissertation project for yeah. somebody. Yeah, I think it would be. So, Scott, 33 years, and you've seen so much change, both in interpretation, the physical field, now the old cyclorama building and visitor center and that wonderful little library where I used to work when, <laughs> when I was working on sacred ground, uh, working at that uh, Xerox machine and, oh, and yeah. looking out over the, the, the picket charge field. You've seen so much uh, change over this time. But this has been a place that you've been invested in uh, personally and professionally. What's the pull of the place for you still after 33 years? I don't know. It's, uh, you know, it's still just a remarkable, it's a remarkable landscape. I mean, the story that occurred there is, is so dramatic and um, still, I mean, the, the whole war is so relevant to America today that um, I've just never, ever become complacent about it. It's, it's always been a, uh, uh, a special, unique landscape, and um, you know, it's one that I've, you know, I've just loved working here. It was always a dream of mine to work in Gettysburg, and uh, it just has never lost its appeal for me. I, I think, I think a part of it is not just the field. It, it isn't just the, the, the battlefield and the, this evocative landscape. It's also the people. You know, the people who come here and the people who work here. Um, every year tend to inspire you. And this year with a particular intensity because of the anniversary, but also as, as you just hinted at, I suspect many people visiting Gettysburg reflecting on contemporary issues of war and sacrifice, aren't they? Oh, I think they definitely will. Um, I also, I tell people a story uh, frequently. I had um, a couple of times after September 11th, I had been giving programs somewhere on the battlefield, and uh, afterwards I received a note from somebody who was on that program that this was two, two times. In both instances, the person who wrote me had been in the Twin Towers on September 11th. And um, Gettysburg meant something special to them. And they came here, you know, trying to find, I think, some type of meaning to the experience that they had passed through. So I think Gettysburg has a power in that respect. I think it also has a, has a power in reminding us about the consequence and cost of war. And, that's a, and that is a good thing because we've just been through. Um, we're winding down in Afghanistan. It was 10 years. Um, so that was a long time that America has been in armed conflict and, um, Gettysburg is a good reminder to people of 
what war really is and what it means, and, and it can be used as a reminder of what young men and women who've served in Afghanistan and Iraq went through. Indeed. Indeed. Well, thank you for doing this, Scott, so much. We've, we've known each other a long time, and I, I think I told you many, many years ago that my first visit to Gettysburg, which I'll never forget, was during our junior high school trip to Washington, D.C., and, and we got to Gettysburg late at night, and the, the pull of the place was so powerful, and I, I remembered uh, reading a characterization by a, a battlefield guide, it won't be any news to you, who talked about a sense of a brooding omnipresence at the, the field, and I that always captured it for me so well, but having the opportunity to... Uh, uh, to get to know you and and Kathy Harrison and Bob Prosperi and and uh, uh, so many others there. John Latcher has been a really wonderful experience. Uh, so thank you for oh, for all of that and thanks for doing this as well. Yeah, it was my pleasure. This was fun. So we've been talking today with Scott Hartwig, who has worked at Gettysburg National Military Park for 33 years. Scott serves now as a supervisory park historian. Last year, the Johns Hopkins University Press released his book to Antietam Creek, the Maryland Campaign of September 1862. Again, Scott, thank you so much and be well. All right, Ed, you too. Take care. All right.